0: Again, it's a wonderful thing to be able to gather together on the Lord's day and to worship him and study his word. And it's certainly a treat seeing you here. It's a joy to be with those of lack, of precious faith. We find things in common with plenty of people across the globe. There are things that we enjoy to share with one another. This is the most special thing because it lasts for eternity. And I'm thankful for your mind focused on eternal things this morning and I've been encouraged by you. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know as well that you're certainly our honored guest, and we want you to be back at any other opportunity that you may have. You might be visiting without uh, background and some of the things that we've done here this morning or talked about here this morning, and we always just want to extend a welcome invitation for anyone to ask questions about those things. And if you have an interest in Bible study, we'd love to study the Bible with you and to come to an understanding of the eternal things of God. We're certainly going to be talking about some of those things this morning. I think that, as was mentioned in the prayer by Scott, and I appreciate his prayer, sin is a very big problem that we don't need to take lightly. We need to run away from it. We need to get rid of it, because as Isaiah 59 tells us, it separates us from our God. And so it would stand to reason that if a writer in the New Testament is going to consider the idea of salvation and the hope that God provides us and the forgiveness that he supplies us with from our sins, that he would talk a lot about sin in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. 1 John five thirteen, the apostle writes that these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It's an interesting concept, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that you have eternal life? How can we know that we have eternal life? Well, John's writing about that, and so it would behoove us to study John's epistle as well as the rest of the New Testament, of course. But the problem that would cause one to trouble is sin and That would give us some doubt about our standing with God. And it should. If we've sinned and we're in sin, then we can't have that confidence that John is seeking to provide. But sin is still a problem. And John writes a lot about sin. And he writes a lot about the child of God. And what the child of God is supposed to be doing to maintain that confidence that he's trying to give Notice in 1 John 2, in verse 1, what John writes. He says, my little children, as he had said in chapter 5 and verse 13, these things I'm writing to you for for this reason. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And so you pair those together, first of all. I'm writing that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing that you may not sin. If we want to know and have confidence that we have eternal life, we cannot be sinning. Let's get that out of the way real quick. You can't sin and be right with God. You cannot walk in the darkness, as he says in verse 6 of chapter 1. But notice in verse 1, the second part of chapter 2, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And so there's still confidence provided. I don't know anybody of us here today who has obeyed the gospel, been added to the kingdom, been added to the church, become a child of God by grace, that there's any one of us who could suggest that we have gone without sinning since becoming a child of God. We never have to sin. Every time we sin, it's a a choice. It's an exercise of free will. Whether it be high-handed rebellion or a moment of weakness, sin is always a choice. We choose to sin, but we don't have to choose to sin. But it stands to reason that sin is evidently an ongoing factor and problem that we have to deal with as a child of God. Sin can and will have a resurgence in the life of a Christian. The question is, what do I do with my sin? And there's the answer there. I wrote these things that you may avoid sin at all costs because it separates you from God. If you sin at that moment in your sin without it being dealt with, you do not have confidence of eternal life. One sin will send you to hell. That shows the importance of Jesus' sacrifice that we just remembered. And that goes with the child of God as well. There is the concept of apostasy within the New Testament. You can fall away from grace. You can fall away from salvation. But even even then one sin that goes unaddressed in the life of one who has not just completely rejected everything, if it's unaddressed, it will separate them from God for eternity. And so he says, don't sin at all. Never even talk yourself into sin. It is always negative. It will always kill your soul. It always causes problems of eternal nature. But if anyone sins... And so we understand the importance of that. We understand the warning of sin. We, we know it's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to be ignored or just brushed to the side. But, but then I'm going to be really troubled when I do decide to sin because I am not seeking the things of God in a moment. I've been overcome with a time of temptation and I have not looked for the way of escape. Every one of us, since we've obeyed the gospel, has done that. And that separates us from God. That's troubling. But he says, if anyone sins, we have a helper, an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And you notice in verse two, it says he's the propitiation for our sins. It's uh, the same from the same root of the word that is translated propitiation in Romans three and verse 25, where it talks about how God gave Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. This is what appeases God's wrath. The blood of Christ is the exchange That is had with god where jesus gives his blood and based on the virtue of that blood our sins are taken away And after we become a child of god, he's saying it's still the blood of jesus that is necessary to take away our sins There's something really important about that Because the question we want to ponder on this morning is what do I do with my sin? Well, I need to seek the cleansing of jesus's blood again That's what it says in verse 7 of chapter 1 the blood of jesus christ cleanses us from all sin. But I want to suggest to you that there's a parallel with that word propitiation. In Romans 3 and verse 25, it says that God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Faith is the access into that grace, Romans 5 and verse 2. And we know good and well that that faith is active, it obeys. And the point in which that faith comes into contact with the blood of Jesus initially is baptism. And that's for another lesson. But we're talking about Christians here and we can understand that we believe that by faith and we can demonstrate that in the scriptures. But if we had to come into contact by faith with the blood of Jesus and there was something we had to do initially to become a child of God and be cleansed, it stands to reason for certainty that here you have to contact. There is something you must do by faith to contact again the blood of Jesus. It's no less than the blood of Jesus that can take your sins away even after you've become a child of God, that's still the price that had to be paid. And so what do I do by faith? Which comes from hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. What does the word of God tell us to do by faith with our sin to receive the cleansing power of Christ's blood, which is the propitiation for our sins? Still, still, the confidence John is seeking to give is dependent on, in part, knowing this truth. You can't have confidence in forgiveness. I can't have confidence in forgiveness if I don't do by faith with my sin before God exactly what He tells us to do. Let me suggest to you firstly, and this may be surprising to you at first, but there's a point to this. We've got to know that we've sinned. We've got to know our sin. What do I do with my sin? Well, you've got to know that you have it. And that may go without saying, but just bear with me for a moment. He says, if anyone sins. So, It's if we don't have to sin. I wrote that you may not sin. So it's possible for me to not sin. It's possible for me to go a minute, an hour, a day, two days, a week without sinning. It's possible. Jesus went his whole life as a man and he is our example and he never sinned. And so we can always choose not to sin for any definite period of time. And the question is, if I sin, what do I do with it? Well, I will have to know that I have Sin. Notice in chapter one in verse eight of first John, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Then he says in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. There's some people who have sinned, but upon the conviction of that sin or the attempt to convict them of that sin, they deny that they've sinned. And so there's a willful ignorance. But here's the idea of I don't know that I've sinned, even though you're showing me where I've sinned. I don't know that I've sinned. I have no sin to my account. And we could talk about that more in another sermon, but they're rejecting the knowledge of sin. Are they forgiven? You got to know it. You've got to know it. How else can you deal with it? What do I do with my sin? Well, if I don't know I have sin, I can't do anything with it. What do I do with with my money to, to further it for my family? Well, you invest that. Well, what if I don't know that I have money in my bank? You can't do with something that you do not know you have in your possession, or in this case, to your account before God. And let me suggest to you something very important, that just assuming is not knowing. There are even some brethren in the church who suggest that, well, we should just assume always that we have sin in our lives. We should just assume. One of the definitions I came across of assume is to suppose to be the case without proof. I know we know what assume means, but key in on that without proof. We've got to have proof that we're in sin. In fact, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, John 16 says, to convict the world of sin, to prove to the world that they have sin. And so assuming is not knowing. You don't just assume that. John is not saying, here's how you can have confidence. Don't sin at all, but always assume you're in sin. That doesn't even make sense, does it? And so assuming is not knowing. Assuming that we're in sin is is not humble. Assuming that we're in sin It's not an act of faith, but there's reasons why people think we should just assume that we're in sin. They'll say, well, we have a sinful nature and there's even some among our brethren who will say, well, not a sinful nature like the Calvinists would suggest inherited total depravity, but still we can't help but sin. There's we're just we're in a sinful world, so we're going to sin. this sinful nature. But the Bible is full of contradictions to that notion. In Romans 7 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul talked about how there was a time where he was without the law and alive. There was a time when he was without sin. Ezekiel eighteen twenty says the soul who sins shall die. It's an activity, an action, a, a choice we make. In 1 John 3 and verse 7, this is what John says by inspiration. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And he who sins is of the devil because the devil has sinned from the beginning and so we can we can know that we have sin we can know that we're free from sin but it's not based on this kind of corrupt nature we, we don't just have to assume that we're in sin because that's not a part of our nature in fact by definition in the scripture sin is something contrary to our nature we're created in the image of God some suggest that well it, there's an inability so we don't have a sinful nature and I don't know how you harmonize this but some will say well, there's just an inability Sin is inevitable. There's an inability. But I want to tell you that Paul contradicts that in 1 Corinthians 10:13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So this idea of inability actually does not manifest a humility spiritually. Like I'm less than what some may seem, and that's humble to admit. That's not what it manifests it manifests a lack of faith in God's word because he said, I won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able. And so we shouldn't just assume that we're in sin. I want to suggest to you that if someone is saying that you've got to just constantly assume that you're in sin, none of us can live above sin. You've got to just assume every moment of the day that you're in sin. You could be in sin. That kind of talk is contrary to the New Testament and it doesn't show a faith in the power of God's gospel. Notice what John defines sin as. In chapter 3 and verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. What if the law was never given? What if God never revealed His will in any way, shape, or form? Before the law of Moses, he, He revealed it to the fathers, the patriarchal dispensation. What if even back then, He never told them anything? I'll tell you what would happen. Notice in Romans 7, in verse 7, Paul is explaining how the law is not sin, but it's actually... Something good. I would not have known sin except through the law For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. So he explains in verse 12 Therefore the law is holy the commandment is holy and just and and good in other words I can't know my sin unless the law shows me what sin is And sin by its very definition is a transgression of that law that tells you not to do something or to do something. There are sins of commission. I've done something God told me not to do. And there are sins of omission. I have not done something God has told me to do. How do we find out about that? How do we even know sin exists? The law tells us what sin is. And it convicts the whole world of sin. And so there's no assumption in that. There's proof. I can show you my sins. I know what I've done. I know what I'm guilty of. And that's the point. You've got to know it to deal with it. And and when we mean, what do I do with it? What do I do to receive forgiveness of this sin? Forgiveness is sought when it's known that it's needed. That's the point. There are people in the world today that don't know they need forgiveness. They need the convicting power of the gospel to show them that they are indeed in sin and they need to be forgiven. Notice in Isaiah 55 and the great invitation The salvation, the prophet reveals, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. So we're seeking, we're seeking forgiveness. Why? Because we know we have sin. But notice verse seven, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. What's the way he's forsaking? Does he know that he's in the wrong way? What are his thoughts that are unrighteous that he's supposed to forsake? Where is he returning from to the Lord? Where'd he go? Do we see that? And and what is God pardoning? I'm seeking forgiveness because I know I have sin. And if I don't know I have sin, I can't or won't seek forgiveness. And the Bible says nothing about just assuming that you're not right with God, just assuming that you're still in sin. Because I, I can't just assume that I'm still in sin when I come up out of the waters of baptism, can I? The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He didn't assume he was in sin. He knew for certainty his sins were washed away. Assuming is not the answer. And so here's, here's the question, and here's why we're talking about this. First, in order to deal with my sin, I have to know I have sin. Because what about the sins I commit and I don't know about? Well, that's a legitimate question. That's a legitimate struggle, and it's one that would cause worry. There are sins that we commit at times in ignorance. I believe that the Bible speaks about people committing sins, and they don't know that they've committed it. Either they don't know that they've done something, or they don't know what the law says about that thing being wrong. So what if I sin and I don't know? So therefore, I'm just going to always assume that I'm in sin, and that'll take care of the problem. No, you've got to know what to seek forgiveness of it. And we'll talk about repentance and confession in a moment. Consider in Leviticus chapter four, just very briefly in verse 13, speaking of sins of the congregation of Israel, and it goes through the context to address individual sins. It says, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord, and anything which should not be done, and are guilty. He's saying they're guilty and they don't know it. But when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And that's just logical, isn't it? If I've sinned and I have not known, I don't know to bring the sacrifice. I don't know that I've sinned. And I don't just endlessly bring sacrifices, assuming that I'm always in sin. These sacrifices are intentional. It brings to our mind our sin that we've committed. It, it comes face to face, the sinner does, with his sin and the sacrifices that he brings to the altar. But I don't know bring that sacrifice if I don't know that I've sinned. And until I know that I've sinned, I can't deal with my sin. But when the sin is known, then you deal with it. You've got to know it first. So what's the, what's the solution to this ignorant sin? Because I think that there are sins that have been committed and are committed in ignorance and the person doesn't, they're none the wiser. It's ignorant. How is that dealt with in the scriptures? You don't just assume and then pray this vague prayer for forgiveness, as we'll talk about, but you pray to God for knowledge of his will. I need to know God's will to know what is sin. And if I come to know something that the Bible says is sin that I didn't know before, but I know I did it back here, then now I know I need to deal with it. So notice Psalm 119 and verse 17 and a psalm about the word of God. He says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. He explains, I'm a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me, I'm a. I am don't know how to navigate my citizenship is in heaven. I don't know how to navigate through the storm that is on this earth. All the temptations and the evil and the sin. I need guidance. So don't hide your word from me. Open my eyes. I need to see what I need to see. And you know what I need to see. You know what I don't see. And so let me see. Scott said in, in Bible class seeking you will find that's that's the key verse. Seeking you will find. This is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, study to show yourself approved. I can't be approved to God and show myself that unless I study to know His will and then I follow it. And then I think it's appropriate as we pray for the knowledge of God's will is to pray for the knowledge of our sin. In Psalm 139 and verse 23, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. He's not assuming there's wicked ways in him. But he says, if there is, and I don't know, I'm not assuming I have it. But if there is, and I don't know. Show me. Show me. That should be our prayer. You remember Jesus on the cross in Luke 23 and verse 34, asked the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was not suggesting that they could be forgiven by God from for a sin of ignorance. They know not what they do. And so he sent the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And those Jews who crucified the Christ with lawless hands were convicted of their sin. And so, first of all, you've got to know it. And I think the reason in part, in large part, you have to know it in order to deal with it is because to deal with it, you've got to repent of it. I can't repent of something that I do not know. In Acts 2 and verse 38, repentance was required in baptism to become a child of God. In Acts 17, 30, it tells us that God requires all men everywhere to repent. And so you've got to know you're in sin, you're in need of the blood of Jesus in order to become a child of God, repent of your sins. But also in Acts, the eighth chapter, we read of a case study where there is a man who has obeyed the gospel. Simon, who was a sorcerer, he's repented of that, become a child of God. But then he sins again, as we have recently studied, when he asks that he would give the power, be given the power and he offered money to lay hands on someone that they would receive the spirit. And this is what Peter told him in Acts chapter 8 and verse 20. Your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. He tells him to repent. And so a child of God who has sinned again must repent. Notice some things that he mentions there in that text. He details what Simon had done. And then he said, repent, therefore, of this, your wickedness. Would Simon know what this was? He had better in order to repent of it. He had better know what he had done in order to repent of it. And that's that's what the language demonstrates there. And I want to suggest to you that the very definition of repentance requires knowledge of sin. In other words, you can't repent of something if you do not know you're guilty of it. The Greek word is metanaeo, and it's a compound word for meta after implying a change, Vine says. and naeo meaning to perceive, and so it literally means to perceive afterwards. He goes on to say that it's in contrast to the Greek word pranaeo, which is to perceive beforehand. And so in 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul mentioned that he's providing honorable things for all men, He's, he's thinking beforehand of what to do. Well, repentance is I'm thinking afterhand of what I did do. And it's because information has been given to me. By definition, I have to be able to think about it in order to repent of it. And so I have to know it to think about it. You don't think about what you don't know. If you're thinking about it, you know something about it. And repentance is to think afterward about it, to perceive afterwards. I think that it's helpful in understanding repentance to see that it's something that is revealed in Scripture as given. Notice in Acts 5 and verse 31. When Peter is preaching after healing that lame man or or, or after being arrested uh, uh, for healing that lame man and preaching in Jesus, he's preaching again and he's telling the, the Sanhedrin that him God has highly exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He says the same thing about the Gentiles in 11 and 18, Acts 11 and verse 18, when he's defending the preaching of the gospel to the household of Cornelius. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, and this is their conclusion, God has also granted to Gentiles repentance to life. What does that mean? Give repentance. Grant, same Greek word, grant and give repentance. You remember in the Great Commission in Luke 24, and in verse 34, rather in, in Luke 24 in verse 47, excuse me. Jesus, in giving the Great Commission in Luke's account, tells the apostles that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance is given when repentance is preached repentance is given when sins are preached against when sins are convicted that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2 repentance was given when they were convicted of their sins in the preaching of the gospel same thing that happened there in Acts chapter 3 he told them I know you did it in ignorance and now God is sending Jesus through our word through our gospel to give repentance to Israel same thing in Acts chapter 10 Cornelius is seeking truth And God tells him, I know you're seeking truth. So send for Peter. You'll hear words from him. You'll hear commands by which you must be saved from him. The whole context talks about a message. And there it was given to them to repent. I'm not given to repent when my brother or sister in Christ leaves me in the dark about my sin that I don't know about. I'm not given to repent unless I come across that conviction within the pages of the Holy Scripture something else that we need to realize as we we've got to know in order to repent, because there has been a conflation of two concepts as the repentance, which leads to salvation by some again, even in the church. They'll, they'll talk about repentance and penitence as the same. If you look up those definitions in a dictionary, you'll see the difference. There are some similarities, no no doubt. And, And certainly there may be some entries that are given in a dictionary that give the same kind of definition. But there are two Greek words that are translated even repent in the New Testament. Metanaoia, which is what we looked at to perceive afterwards. And then there's another one. Metamelomai. And it's meta afterwards implying a change just like in metanaoia, but then mellow to care for. There's the difference. To think differently afterwards and to feel differently afterwards, to care for differently afterwards. Very closely related, but some have oversimplified repentance and suggested that repentance is simply feeling bad about just being one who has sinned. I'm always remorseful for the fact that my sins put Jesus on the cross, but that's not what repentance is. There is penitence that is involved in the process of coming to forgiveness But penitence and repentance are not the same thing. And I think we can learn that from Matthew 27 and in verse 3. When speaking of Judas Iscariot who had betrayed Jesus, it says that he was remorseful. That's the word, metamelomai. He was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He repented himself is what the older versions say. It's interesting that the ESV says that he changed his mind. And while that certainly the degree uh, to a degree, the case that he changed how he felt about it, it wasn't a full 180 turn in his heart's conviction to rectify the wrong. It did not say that he met an or met an Eo, he cared for afterwards and he went and hanged himself. It says that he might go to his own place in Acts 1 and verse 25, which is an idiom for eternal punishment. And so you see, Judas repented, but he didn't really repent. He had penitence, he had sorrow, he cared afterward about what he had done wrong, but he did not care enough to change his will and rectify the wrong and turning from it before Jesus. So I want to suggest to you that the repentance that we must do in order to be forgiven of our sins is comprehensive of a change, an afterward change of the entire man. It would include emotions. But it would not stop at emotions. And I believe that we have that demonstrated for us in the seventh chapter of the second epistle to the Corinthian church. And remember, Paul wrote first Corinthians to convict them of their sin. He talked about that letter in second Corinthians seven and verse eight. And he said, if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. I want to suggest to you, first of all, and we'll see repentance in this chapter that repentance is a change of the intellect. They were doing some things in 1 Corinthians that evidently they were not aware in the particular circumstance and context were the wrong thing to do. And Paul showed them. He wrote a letter. He explained that they were indeed in sin. And so their intellect was affected. They they thought differently of what they were doing before after Paul wrote the letter. And what's interesting is, He said that I do not regret that I wrote the letter, though I did regret it. And that's this word metamelomai, which means to care for afterward. And what he's saying is that when I wrote the letter, I did not feel bad about it, but I actually did feel bad about it. But you notice the tense of the words he uses there. He says, I do not regret it. I do not feel bad about it though I did feel bad about it. And there's a reason why he, he did feel bad about it, but he doesn't anymore. And it's because their sorrow led to repentance. That letter changed their mind about the things they were doing. Their intellect was changed. It shifted to the truth. And then their emotion got to them. Notice in verse 8, I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry. The only for a while. And I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So they had a change of intellect. They were informed that what they did was wrong. And when they were informed of that, they were moved to a sort of metamelomai. It doesn't use the word here, but that's the concept. Now they cared differently about the sin before. You think about 1 Corinthians 5, and he says that you didn't deliver that one who was overtaken in adultery. You didn't deliver him to Satan that is destruction of the flesh and that his soul may be saved, but you were puffed up. They didn't think very negatively about that. In fact, ironically, they were thinking positively. They were puffed up. But now that Paul rebukes them, now they care differently about it. They have an emotional reaction to it. But the emotional reaction, the penitence, is not itself repentance. It's incomplete at this point. You had sorrow, but it's incomplete because it depends on what you do with that sorrow and what that sorrow is really about that determines whether you'll be forgiven or not. He talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. You remember Cain in Genesis 4, his countenance had fallen. And God said if, if you do well won't you be fine and why is your countenance fallen Cain he, he had a kind of sorrow there a metameloma he cared for it differently he offered the sacrifice God said I didn't accept the sacrifice and now his countenance is fallen but he certainly was not forgiven as he murdered his brother Judas Iscariot again was remorseful but you notice he says in a godly manner that is before God my sorrow comes in the fact that I have sinned against God. Joseph would say in Genesis 39, how can I do this great wickedness and sin before God? That's the concept. I'm not sorry because I got caught. I'm not sorry because I have to like stop in front of you doing what I actually want to do. My sorrow is before the Lord. And that's how David felt, isn't it? In Psalm 51 and verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And so certainly there's an emotional involvement in repentance, but it's not the only thing. I can have an intellectual, a change of mind concerning the fact of this being sin. Feel sorry at first about it and decide to ignore it and keep on doing it. I now know that it's sinful My conscience is pricked and my sin, but now I'm going to sear my conscience so I can do it, even though I know it's wrong, without feeling bad. That's the sorrow of the world. But this is what he says they did in verse nine. That they were made sorry in a godly manner because godly sorrow produces repentance. That's metanoia that leads to salvation. And notice verse 11. This is important because there is a change of of understanding and intellect. There is an emotional change. I care differently about it. I feel differently about it. But that must translate into a change of will. You see, I can read about the truth and be convinced that, yes, that's what the truth says, but not change my will to reflect it. True repentance leading to salvation is a change of mind leading to a feeling, a conviction inwardly leading to a change of will which will manifest then in action notice verse 11 observe this very thing observe it it's observable what diligence you saw it in a godly manner what diligence it produced in you what clearing of yourselves what indignation what fear what vehement desire what zeal what vindication and all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter and i want to tell you something the repentance required by god is something we prove to him. We prove by our actions, our change, our resolve to do it no more. You might remember in Luke chapter 3 when John the baptizer is preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached that to the brethren. It was a baptism of repentance leading to salvation. Then they asked the question in Luke 3 and verse 10, what shall we do then? You say, change your mind, change your will, turn away. What do we do? He who has two tunics, he says, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Here's some people being stingy, prideful, arrogant with their possessions. You share. Tax collectors also came and said, what shall we do? Collect no more than what is appointed for you. You've been taking off the top for yourself. You've been adding to their burden. You stop doing that. And then he tells soldiers, he says, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. You're abusing your authority. Stop abusing your authority. They knew what they were doing was wrong. And he says to repent of that, you stop doing it. If you've changed your mind about it, then you're going to change your actions. In Acts 19 and verse 19, there were some people who practiced magic and they came there with their very expensive books, confessing their deeds and burn them in the presence of all. I've heard that described as a bonfire of repentance. Maybe we need to have a bonfire of repentance. When we're convicted of our sins, we get rid of it. We burn it up. We turn away from it. But I want to tell you, that's not even all. You can have a knowledge of your sin... Your mind can change about it. You factually know that it's wrong and you feel bad about it. And then you decide even to change your will. I'm not going to do it any longer. You stop doing it or you start doing what you weren't doing before in a sin of omission. And if that's all you do, you won't be forgiven. You might say, what do you mean, Jeremiah? Notice in 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 9, this is what we do with our sin. John is writing for confidence in salvation. And he says, stay away from sin or you won't have confidence. But if you sin, you can still have confidence if you have that dealt with. What do I do with it then? He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if I have a knowledge of it, a change of mind about it, a change of action about it, but I never confess my sin to the Lord, I will not be forgiven. You notice the conditional word, if we confess our sins. That's a strong word, isn't it? Because if not, then the sin will not be forgiven. But just like repentance, confession requires knowledge. Did you notice what he said there? If we confess our sins, look at all the versions you want. They all say it. If we confess our sins, it does not say if we confess that we have sin. So someone says, hey, you need to own up to it. You lied to me, didn't you? And they say, well, yeah, I've lied before. No, that's not what I asked you. You lied to me in this circumstance. So he doesn't say if we confess that we have sinned. He doesn't say if we confess our sinfulness. And that's the that's the area where this idea of penitence as repentance comes in. That I, I know that I... I'm sinful by nature, someone will say, or I'm I'm incapable that I could be in sin in any moment at any time. And so I'm just going to confess my sinfulness to God so he can forgive me just in case. Doesn't say that, though, does it? It doesn't say that if we confess that we may have sinned. So someone comes forward and they stand before the congregation, they say, hey, if, if I've done anything wrong, I want your forgiveness. We wouldn't let that fly. He doesn't say if we confess that we may have sinned. He says if we confess our sins, what are your sins? You have them. They're not the same sins as this person over here. They're your sins. And if you confess those sins, that specific language, that's a requirement of confession. And just like repentance, confession by definition requires knowledge. Sorry, I fell behind on that. Not that we have sin or sinfulness that we may have sin. The Greek word for confess is hamalegeo, and it means to speak the same thing. Literally, it's from homo, same and lego to speak. And so if, if I say make this confession that you have lied to me, the confession would be you're right. I have lied to you. I've said the same thing. I've agreed to it. I've assented to it. I've not contradicted it. And so Vine goes on to demonstrate what its, mean, what, what its meaning is in this usage in 1 John 1, nine To confess by way of admitting oneself guilty of what one is accused of. The result of inward conviction. And so I'm accused of something specifically by the word of God. And I agree that I'm guilty of it. I confess that I'm guilty of it. I admit that. That I'm guilty of it. This is what they did in Acts chapter 19. They came confessing their deeds and burned their books of magic in the sight of all. They confessed what? That they had done wrong? They confessed that they had done wrong in the past, that they may have done wrong? They confessed their deeds. What did they actually do? Notice in Psalm 32, what David says about the importance of, of confession and why it makes sense that we need to tell God that we did something that he already knows we did. In Psalm 32 and verse 3, it says, By David, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You might say, David, well, that's kind of a goofy thing to even say because you can't hide your sin from God. Well, certainly not. God knew he sinned. He knew exactly what he did, when he did it, how many times he had done it, how long it had been since he'd done it. You can't hide anything from God, but that's why confession is an exercise of faith. He owned up to it. Confession of sin brings one face to face with their sin. It manifests true accountability. And so a generic and vague confession really is not impressive at all. It certainly doesn't show humility. In fact, it manifests the kind of pride that is thinking themselves above admitting specific wrong. Wasn't that big of a deal. But confession brings us face to face. And it's what's necessary to receive mercy. Proverbs 28, 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so confession implies a few things. Confession of sin cannot be done for sins of ignorance. How how do I confess to something I don't know? If If the cops knock on my door and they say, we know you did it, we need a confession. I'm going to ask, what did I do? Unless I know that I did it and I'm willing to own up to it. You can't confess to something you don't know you did. Confession of sin cannot be done, the true confession, without conviction. And conviction comes with knowledge, and so I've got to know. I've got to be truly convicted that what I've done is wrong and is deserving of death. And confession of sin can't be vague then in general. Can't just pray several times throughout the day, God, in case I've sinned, please forgive me, because that doesn't meet this condition here. What have you done to sin? That's what's necessary to be forgiven of it. So someone will say, well, that means I have to I'm a forgetful person. And so what if I, I forget about this, that and the other? And, and what this has been considered is as total recall. And one of the, the greatest arguments for this idea that you've got to have a vague confession is for the apostate who fell away and they come back five years later Do they have to detail to God every single sin they committed throughout those five years? Have every single one of them cataloged in order to be forgiven? But that's not what we're saying here. And so a person's sin of choice is drunkenness. And they've left the Lord. They've fallen away. And for five years, they've been drinking every day. Do they have to confess every single drink? Which beverage it was? Which time it was? Who were they with? The total recall of their sin. No, but do they know what their sin is? The drunkenness, drunkard must confess his drunkenness. The liar must confess his lying. The adulterer must confess his adultery. You see the point here? That's specific. I know the sin I've committed. I can't even begin to bring together all the times I've committed it for the apostate. That may be struggle, a struggle. It may be impossible. It probably is. But I know what led me. To leave the Lord. I confess my sins to Him. And then lastly, but certainly not least, and this is again another obvious thing, but I think that it needs to be said. What do I do with my sin? Well, I need to pray to God for forgiveness of it. I can know that I've sinned. I can have a change of mind about that, a change of will that leads to a change in action. I don't do it anymore. I can confess before the church or to someone else. Or just say to myself that I've sinned. I never ask God for to forgive me of that sin. Doesn't work that way, does it? Remember in Acts 8 and verse 22, what the Apostle Peter told Simon to do. He said, repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. If he had repented of that sin Had a change of mind about it, stopped doing it. He confessed to Peter, but he didn't confess to God and ask for forgiveness. You think he'd be saved? Not according to Scripture. You see, forgiveness belongs to God. We've got to ask Him for it. Remember in Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, in verse 5, when a paralytic was before Jesus and before He healed him, He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. Only God can forgive sins. What they were mistaken about is that this man is not just any man. He's God in the flesh. So the context goes. They were right. Forgiveness belongs to God. Matthew 7 and verse 7 then tells us, If you seek, you will find. If you ask, it will be given to you. Which leads us to chapter 5 of 1 John. Right after he said, I've written these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. He says this in 1 John 5, 14. Now this is the confidence. I've written to you that you may know. That's confidence. This is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. And so you ask him for anything according to his will, you can have confidence that he has answered that. He's given it to you. If he doesn't give you something you ask for, you know it wasn't according to his will. It's always according to his will to forgive the people who seek forgiveness according to his conditions that he has set. But you notice there, he goes on in verse 16 to say this. He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and He will give life for those who commit sin not leading to death. He says there is sin leading to death, and I do not say that He should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So we also can request prayers from others for them to pray to God that God would forgive us. And that what Simon did? And Peter did not rebuke him for that. Simon said, pray to God for me, lest any of these things come upon me that you said. And James 5 and verse 16, it tells us to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I know we like to go to that verse all the time to talk about praying for the physical ailments of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and certainly so. That's in the context too. But spiritual healing is just as much in the context. It's right for you to ask me and me to ask you to pray to God for me to be forgiven. But how does that work? He says, according to his will, he speaks about a sin that does not lead to death and a sin that leads to death. What is the the only sin that does not lead to death? James 1 tells us that 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 temptation gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin always kills. The wages of sin is death. Isaiah 59, one and two, sin has separated us from God. That's that separation is death, spiritual death. So what sin does not lead to death? The sin that is repented of, confessed and forgiven by God. That's the point. And it's right for us to pray about that, but brethren, we've got to pray for it ourselves. Or it's not going to work out. These are the things that the Bible tells us to do with our sin. Sin is never an excused thing. Sin is never okay. Sin is always negative, and you had better believe that your sin, even if you've obeyed the gospel and become a child of God, your sin will send you away from God for eternity if you do not do with your sin what God has told you to do with your sin, to be forgiven. That's key. That's important. I can have all the faith in the world that I think I have, and if I don't do this by faith, I won't be forgiven by God. And again, it has nothing to do with ritual. There's no power in my words, but again, he's given us an advocate who is the propitiation accessed by faith this is what faith does according to the will of god to receive forgiveness if we have sinned again and it's imperative that we know that as individuals and that we stand for it collectively as well if you're here this afternoon and have not obeyed the gospel there is no prayer you can pray to be forgiven the sinner's prayer does not exist in the gospel god does not hear the prayers of sinners a man mentioned correctly i believe in john chapter 9 But what Peter told the people on the day of Pentecost to do to be forgiven initially and become citizens of the kingdom, members of the church, children of God is repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. We can assist you with that today if you have a need. And if there's anything else that we can assist with, maybe you've sinned. You're a child of God, but you've sinned in a public manner. Maybe it's in a private manner and you could just really use the the encouragement and prayers of the church. Don't delay We're here to help you, and God wants to forgive you. So come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.